0: When we read the Bible, there's a handful of times where blunt statements about who God is are made. Just God is blank statements. So you may be familiar, for example, with the fact that 1 John tells us that God is love. Okay. Another thing that the Bible tells us is that God is light. And the thing about light is that it is self-revealing. None of you have to wonder where the sun is today right? It's clearly right there. It can't be missed. If, if the sun is present, the sun is shining, and the sun is visible. When the Bible says that God is light, it's speaking about the fact that he's not hiding, that he's not hidden, that it, uh, the human experience from a Christian perspective is best understood not as us searching for God, but as God showing himself to us, okay? And what we're going to look at today involves that reality. Effectively, because God is a speaking God, because God has spoken, in fact, because God is speaking present tense, Christian ministry involves communication. It involves a message, a proclamation. In fact, even the word gospel that we center Christian understanding around is best translated as good news, okay? We have a headline to proclaim, to shout from the corners like the newsies. Um, That is built into what Christian ministry is. And so as we continue to look at the shape of ministry uh, this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I want you to notice how heavily it emphasizes the importance of the verbal, the importance of message and the importance of light. Let's read together chapter four, the first six verses. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing, in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we learned in our catechism this morning, you sent your spirit to illuminate our understanding of who you are, to reveal to us through your word who you are. And so I pray that the helper would be active this morning in all of our hearts that as your word is laid bare before us, uh, we would see uh, with the Spirit's help, we would understand with the Spirit's help, and we would be uh, spoken to with the Spirit's help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed that chapter 4 begins with the word, therefore. Paul is mid-argument here. In fact, when he says, therefore, having this ministry... He's referring to this ministry and not that ministry. He's just been talking about a contrast, one between what he labels the Old Covenant and his ministry, which he labels the New Covenant. If you were with us last week, we saw that the Old Covenant was headed and announced in the ministry of Moses, that it involved the law written on tablets of stone, uh, you know, a mountain, Mount Sinai, enveloped in smoke, a tabernacle, a temple, a priesthood, and sacrifices. That is the Old Covenant. In fact, when we refer to the Old Testament, that's technically what we're calling it, the Old Covenant. Testament is a related word to the word covenant. But Paul says in Jesus Christ, God has done something new, not something unannounced, not something unknown, not a plan B. As we saw last week, the purpose of the old covenant is to show us our need for the new. The old covenant demonstrates that we cannot live up to God's standards, that there's something not just wrong with our circumstances, absolutely nothing wrong with the law itself, but internally in us we find something Inable, incapable of keeping God's law. We are fallen beings, and so we don't need a law, we need a savior. And so the old covenant operated to demonstrate our need for a savior, and the new covenant operated to provide for that need. And so Paul says that his ministry is bound up in this new covenant, the proclamation uh, of Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf. And so laying this on the table of the new covenant that God has sent his son in Jesus Christ to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we all deserve, uh, and then announced it through his apostles, uh, announced it through his church. He's given us, as it says in chapter five, the next chapter, the ministry of reconciliation. It's that ministry that he's talking about here, and he describes what it looks like verbally, okay? First off, we should own up to the fact um, that for Paul to describe what ministry, of all Christians, looks like verbally, it means that the ministry must be verbal. You may know of the famous saying, uh, often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, uh, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Now, uh, St. Francis was an interesting guy. Uh, He actually preached to the animals, proclaimed the gospel in the forest when he was humanly by himself. Um, But also, we don't have any reliable document close enough to the life of St. Francis to know that he actually said that. But it's often been attributed to him. Um, But it's worth uh, recognizing what St. Paul says, let's stop with St. Francis for a second and go back to St. Paul. And in Romans chapter 10, he says, how will they believe in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear unless somebody proclaims to them? Okay. If Christianity was a disease, it would be verbally contagious. Okay. God is a revealing God, a self-revealing God. He has something to say in Jesus Christ. John's gospel tells us this. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. Why does he give Jesus that label? Because Jesus is making manifest who God is. Okay. In fact, he goes on in verse 18, and he says uh, uh, that no one has seen God who is invisible, but the word he has made him known. And made him known, there is the Greek word exegesomai. It means to exegete. It's the same thing I'm doing with the text right now, to make clear to open the understanding, to demonstrate and prove. That was part of Jesus' mission, to show who God is. And so, we have to recognize here, yes, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Thumbs up, it's necessary, use words. Part of what we have to say uh, in Jesus Christ is validated and demonstrated in our love, proven and even made visible, when we come alongside someone, you cannot remove the proclamation of Christianity from the concept of incarnation. Right? Jesus was the word. He was the message, but he was the word made flesh who laid hands on the sick and they were healed, who wrapped his arms around John the beloved. Right? There's more um, than verbal communication, but not less. So he says, therefore having this ministry, and then he says, by the mercy of God, Having this ministry by the mercy of God, the first thing we need to understand about the ministry that we've been given uh, is that we didn't earn it. In fact, when he says by the mercy of God, he means one of two things here. He's either recognizing that he's not merely a mailman carrying a message, but also a co recipient. In other words, when he says having this ministry by the mercy of God, what he's saying is, I have received mercy. He's recognizing the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the first thing we do with the gospel is receive it or reject it. And that has to happen before we can carry it. The good news has to be our good news. In fact, later in Paul's life, he begins to refer to the gospel as my gospel. Not to distinguish from a bunch of other nuanced versions of gospels, but to emphasize the fact that he's a recipient. In fact, he says that although he was a blasphemer and a murderer in 2 Timothy, God had mercy on him as the chief of sinners. And that word there for chief of sinners doesn't just mean he feels like he would win the gold medal for sin. It's the word protos. It means that he's the prototype. He says, if God can save me, he can save anybody. And so he saved me just to cut a pattern out of the cloth large enough for anyone to walk through easily. So when he says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we have to always, always remember before we open our mouth that we first opened our ears. We have to always remember uh, that our standing before God is not based on our ministry. Our ministry stems from our standing. If you will, it's like a world is full of drowning people and we've been pulled back into the boat. And while we're still wrapped in a blanket getting warm, we're extending our hand back into the ocean. The more distant we get from that reality, the more we uh, start to think of um, life as we know it, as us and them. As righteous and wicked. As inside and outside. And that's a truth, but it's not the whole truth. It's not where we started. Second, though, when he says, by the mercy of God here, most likely he's extending that idea to the fact that even his role as apostle is not something he deserved. In fact, it's something we should probably get out of the way this morning. When we talk about the word ministry, a lot of you naturally and inherently think disqualified. And it may be because you're a new Christian. And so you think, well, I just haven't been around long enough. Or maybe it's because you feel like you just haven't gotten far enough in the Christian life in terms of maturity, or you're not gifted enough to be used by God in such a particular way, when he points out here that it's by the mercy of God that Paul does ministry, that applies to all of us. It's something that God gives, not something that we earn. And so when we open our mouths, we do it confident that God is working, confident that God has mercifully given us a role. I'll be frank. Ministry, preaching the gospel, ministering to those who are hurting, proclamation of hope, anything that falls under the category of ministry can sometimes be tremendously exciting. But there's a danger in that excitement that we would start to think that we're somehow Necessary in the process. That we would be like a scalpel after an amazing surgery going, man, look at that heart die I just fixed. Right? And so we need to constantly remind ourselves that our standing is just because of God's mercy. That it, God wasn't sitting up there, you know, before the season going, okay, I need to recruit some new talent. Where are the best? That's not how it works. In fact, if you read through the Bible carefully, who does God often choose to be his mouthpiece? There's an occasion where a king in the Old Testament is in need of healing, and you know who's the one who points him to God? Just a servant woman. Just humbly and quietly. Throughout the New Testament, when Paul ca- or, excuse me, when Jesus calls the apostles, who does he choose? Galileans, with their rough-around-the-edges accent fishermen and tax collectors right peter is impulsive james and john are trigger happy and yet this is where it begins and one of the things one of the things that drew me into christian ministry was getting this idea that god could use anybody I was in the same place. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a big Baptist church. And so I was very uncomfortable when I became a Christian with the idea that I was one of them. Not, not because I disliked them, but because I knew who I was. And so, although I found in myself a desire to communicate the Bible, to see happen in other people's lives what was happening in mine in that first year, I was convinced I was disqualified. I was convinced I was incapable But luckily, I found a Calvary Chapel like this one, and I started hearing the stories of pastors. And if you guys dig deep enough, our pastors are a rowdy bunch. Their backgrounds are insane. The biggest evangelical church in Germany um, two decades ago was a Calvary Chapel. The guy who started it before he became a Christian as an adult had only read one book, Green Eggs and Ham. Okay. Mike McIntosh down in San Diego uh, went on a bad trip and was convinced he blew off half of his head with a gun and got saved in the midst of that and now has not only a huge church in San Diego, but has planted churches all over the world. Even Chuck Smith, where Calvary Chapel begins, was just kind of an average Joe and suddenly he's baptizing thousands of hippies in the ocean. Not because he was hip or cool or relevant. If you watch the videos, he's none of those things. (laughs) But he was available, and he was flexible, and he was loving, and he had a very clear understanding that that huge thing that happened, now Calvary Chapel, yeah, since the 1970s, is 1,700 churches worldwide. We're one of the fastest growing church planting movements without having any form of an arm of church planting, just, just natural growth uh, in the last 30 years, but Chuck understood What Paul says here, that it was by the mercy of God. And so he says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Okay? This is the second point that Paul wants us to get this morning. We shouldn't be disheartened. Sometimes, as I mentioned, that comes from disqualification. A lot of times it comes from lack of visible consequence. You have friends that you care about. You finally put yourself out there and you mention Jesus and it goes horribly wrong. Right? You've been talking with the same person, hoping and, and longing for them to come to understanding, but nothing is happening yet. And Paul says that because it's the new covenant, we do not lose, lose heart. Why does he say that? Well, you may not remember, but, we, uh, but we've been learning that the ministry of the new covenant is so profound because it's inherently miraculous. That because it's not about laws and rules, that we don't have to worry about a sign that says you must be this righteous to get in. That the gospel is an equal opportunity message of salvation that extends to all. That no matter where people are at, there's hope. Like I said, it's a message of mercy. On top of that, let me add one other thing. God tells long stories. Have you noticed this? God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. 25 years later, God meets the promise. God comes to Moses somehow, we're not told how. He knows he's to be the deliverer of Egypt. He even steps out in that role and tries to stop injustice, stop a fight between his brothers. And because he's murdered a man, he's run out of town and spends 40 years as a shepherd. And then God goes, okay, now, now's the time. God promises a Messiah. It's thousands of years until we get to what Paul calls in Galatians the fullness of time when God sent his son the seed of a woman. God tells long stories. In fact, the story he's telling in your life is lifelong. George Mueller was a a man who in Bristol, London, he was German, but in Bristol, London, he had an orphanage. And he learned what it was like to follow God in faith, especially in prayer. And the stories you read about the answers of prayer in his life are nothing short of insane. Where he would sit at the breakfast table with 20 orphans and his staff, with nothing in the pantry, and he would pray, God, thank you for this meal we're about to eat. And the doorbell would ring, and he'd open the door, and there'd be a man who just says, my ox just went lame right in front of your door. I have a card of goods going to the market. They'll never make it. They're going to spoil. Can you use it? His life was full of stories like that, but he had two very close friends who he constantly and regularly shared the gospel with and were hesitant and resistant to it all of his life. And he committed to pray for them every single day when he rose in the morning. And when he died, they still weren't Christians. And when his funeral happened, they both received Jesus. God tells long stories so we do not lose heart. Okay. but he goes on he says not only do we understand our mercy in the context of ministry not only is it one that doesn't lose heart where we don't despair but verse 2 we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning to tamper with God's word and so he says there's things that we don't do in fact he says that we've renounced these things we put them at a distance we refuse to be open to them We will not do these things. And what does he say they are? The first one is disgraceful and underhanded ways. See, there's something that we have to understand about communication. In fact, our world is in dire need of learning this lesson, and so is the church. Method impacts message. It always does. We can't just look at anything in this world as a bare-naked medium and not recognize that it carries and conveys and sometimes changes what it transmits. Now, I think partially it's just because we're bad at English, written English especially, but have you ever noticed how bad text message is for deep conversations? How often there's misunderstandings? How how you say something really simple and all of the connotation and the denotation just overwhelms it and suddenly you're having, you know, this rapid fire machine gun fight when you were really just talking about something so totally neutral. I like I said, I'm convinced that's partially our fault as a culture because you look at the letters from the Civil War and you don't find the same problem, right? But but we would all recognize there's certain things you just shouldn't do by text message. Break up with a girlfriend quit your job communicate your undying love for someone there's all places all sorts of places where the message falls short for Christianity because we proclaim that uh, that God is the God of truth and that's another characteristic of light by the way it's pure, it's clean okay it means that the way we go about things matters that for Christians the ends never justify the means. And so he's afraid here of disgraceful and underhanded ways and one of the things that he's thinking about here one of the things he's thinking about here is let's see how do I want to label this we'll call it setting traps. He's concerned about the ability we have as human beings to be sneaky. In fact, the word he uses here for practice cunning means willing to do anything. Okay. And I think we've seen this on occasion. I think we've seen places where the message of Christianity is demonstrably hypocritical because it's partnered with All of these other aspects. To really understand what we're talking about here, we have to get to the positive. He says, these are the things we don't do, but instead we do these things. So hold on to that for just a second. But the other thing he says is, we refuse to tamper with God's word. The word there for tamper uh, comes from wine merchants. It's the only place where it's used in the New Testament. He uses the corresponding uh, word in chapter two when he talks about those who peddle God's word. Those, that's a word, the peddler for the wine merchant. And when he uses this word here, it means uh, to not dilute God's word, not to adulterate it would be a, a way that I believe the King James puts it. The idea here is that we have a tendency to take what God says and cut it with something else. Okay? And maybe that's as simple as a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. But a lot of times it's, it's the gospel and. In fact, his concern with the Corinthian church was that there was a group of roving speakers who have come and said, yes, yes, Jesus and Moses. Gospel and law. Baptism and circumcision. And Jesus, uh, Paul gets really frank with these people in the book of Galatians, and he says, you're preaching another gospel. Not the gospel and additions. Not the bonus features package. A completely different gospel entirely. Paul would say, no, 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 it's gospel or law. In fact, he says if you're circumcised, then you've committed yourself, subjected yourself to keeping the whole law. If you go back to the old covenant, then you are by nature denying the new covenant. And so these are people who were tampering with God's word. You see, one of the things we have to recognize is if Christianity is about communicating a message, the message is not ours. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what's desired of a minister or a servant of God is faithfulness. And in communication, that means faithful communication of the message. So notice how he contrasts this. We don't do these things. No disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth. That's the contrast. The open statement of the truth. When he says here that the statement he makes is open, that means that it's public, that it's visible, that it can be cross-referenced and checked. It's the open statement of the truth. We see this happening in Paul's ministry when he visits a small town called Berea. And as as he's explaining to this synagogue that Jesus is the Messiah and has come, just as the Old Testament told, it says that the Bereans were more faithful than those in Thessalonica, the last town he was in, because they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Paul didn't come on his own authority. He didn't come with a new or novel message. He didn't come with creativity. He came with a message and he said, read it for yourself. I have, in the past decade of teaching the Bible, grown to an approach that's summed up in the word clarity. You may have noticed I'm not big on illustrations. I use them sometimes, but I use them like windows to let the light in. Spurgeon famously said, Sometimes sermon illustrations are like stained glass windows. They're beautiful, but they distort the power of the light. I'd rather just have a clear window than a stained glass one, Spurgeon said, if I'm trying to let the light in. Okay stained glass in a church is beautiful. In a study, it's not, it's not what you need. You need full, unadulterated light. And so the goal of us in proclaiming the message is clarity, and that's not easy. Because a lot of times, a lot of times we add to the message culture. A lot of the times our communication isn't clear because we don't know who we're speaking to. And so we speak to hypothetical versions of them, and we don't really know where they're at. A lot of times our communication is unclear because it's one directional. There's no dialogue. And so there's questions that they have and we don't provide the answers and we assume because they haven't finished, you know, haven't crossed the line um, that we've been clear when we have not. In fact, that's impacted the way I think about preaching. Generally, when I preach before you guys, I think of it like us going on a journey. And it's a journey of multiple legs and if any of you miss your connecting flights, then you won't get to the destination. And so I know I'm the only one talking right now, but I honestly think of preaching as a dialogue, a very difficult one, because I have to guess what you're thinking. I try and assume and understand and figure out when you're going to go, I don't believe that. When you're going to go, I have no idea what you just said. Or when you're going to go, yeah, but isn't this other thing important? And I know I fail at that sometimes, but why do I try? Because clarity is what Paul says here, the Oakland proclamation of the gospel. Paul desired to be so clear then in the city of Ephesus, Corinthians, or Corinth and Ephesus were the two major places where Paul spent a ton of time. He was in Thessalonica for weeks. He was in Ephesus for three years. And while he was there, he rented a hall in a school known as the School of Tyrannus and daily met there and proclaimed the gospel. So that, not just all of Ephesus, but it tells us in Acts chapter 19, all of Asia heard the gospel. The entire region around there, who all passed through the big city of Ephesus, like the big city of Seattle, right? Uh, People come through here from all over the region. Um, He did that daily and preached in such a way that all heard. But here's what's interesting about that passage. The word for preaching there, there's many that the Bible uses. The one in our text this morning that he's about to use is caruso. It means to proclaim, to herald. The one it uses there is oh man, these Greek words, dilagesomai. It's where we get our word dialogue. And it doesn't always mean that there's two sides in the conversation, but the way that it's parsed in that passage is unique and it's put in a passive. And so what that means is that he's not driving the conversation, he's fielding questions. Why? Because Paul wants to be clear. In fact, Paul says that that's why he becomes like every man, like every woman, he steps into culture and becomes like them so that he can clearly communicate the gospel. Okay? So this is not some sort of simple, I read the verse to them, isn't that enough? Whatever it means when it says here that we should speak with open statement of truth, it doesn't mean we just you know, throw out a statement and walk away and dust our hands off. It means we're devoted to, to clarity and conveying the messages God has given it. In fact, let's stop. That's an emphasis on truth, but there's another emphasis here, which is love. It doesn't come up in this passage because that's not where the concern is. Paul addresses that in other places. But as I mentioned before, the medium matters, and the primary way that God communicates the gospel is through flesh and bone human beings. Why? Why? Why did Jesus have to become a man? It's not only because it was us as men and women who needed to be saved and he as a man needed to die in our place. It's also because when the word becomes flesh, suddenly the truth becomes tangible. Right? And so when we read God is love, now we know what that means in the life of Jesus Christ. We see it play out on the pages Recently, I read a book by Rosaria Butterfield called Openness Unhindered. Rosaria has got an interesting testimony. She was a tenured professor in queer studies uh, and feminist studies at Syracuse University and got radically saved. And her first book, Secrets of an Unlikely Convert, kind of walks through that. Openness Unhindered is something a little bit different. But the last part of Openness Unhindered is all about, I'm not checking my text, I'm reading you a quote. Um, (laughs) The last part of Openness Unhindered is all about the idea of hospitality. And she sees hospitality as essential to this ministry. I want you to listen to how she talks about this. She says, what is my takeaway, my hope for you as you read this? Friendship and neighborly proximity are necessary components to working through theological differences in Christian love. Ideas are not enough. Ideas buttressed with sarcasm and anger and thrust through the channels of the internet do more harm than good. Ideas have never been enough, not for God. Ideas that divide must travel with warm pots of chicken soup when a friend is sick and shoulder-to-shoulder gardening when the irises in the yard beg for thinning so that they can root in the next yard. Ideas that divide must travel on the back of Christian life practices that allow us to stand shoulder-to-shoulder as we submit before a holy and loving God. This is the Christian labor of real neighbors. She argues there, and and pretty uh, profoundly, that hospitality to strangers only happens with people different than us. And so when we're called as Christians to be hospitable, that inherently means crossing the divide, inviting people into your house, having a conversation, feeding them dinner, babysitting their kids, etc. And so it's always these two things, truth and love. And if the truth is lacking love, it's no longer true. It becomes a half-truth. But if the love is lacking truth, it also is no longer love. You see, a lot of the times, the reason we don't open our mouths in the truth in any of our relationships on any topic is not because we love the other person, but because we love ourselves. Because we know, oh man, if I start this conversation tonight, the rest of my night is ruined. We think, oh, but what will they think of me? You know, And so our desire to be liked trumps something that could be harmful in their life, something that's incongruent with life as it should be. And so truth and love are really two sides of the same coin, and you can't do one for very long without the context of the other. But the focus this morning is on truth, and so we'll leave it there. Clearly. Clearly this implies you have to know. One of the I think the nuances of Christian ministry is that you don't you don't graduate before it starts. Right? This is a very large book. God is an infinite being. His plan of salvation is multifaceted, beautiful, and nuanced. And the possible questions and lives lived that aren't your life are so diverse and different. Okay? And so all I would say is, um, if God has given us a message, you've got to do your homework. You have to know what's actually said. You have to be willing to take your doubts and do your due diligence and not just ask questions to provide excuses to not look deeper, but ask questions as the beginning of a journey. I mentioned the faithful Bereans earlier who searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Notice a few things. First off, the people who are being held up as heroes there, ones for emulation, are not yet Christians. Second, when it says to see if those things were true, that's a fourth-class conditional Greek statement. Okay, here's what this means. A first-class conditional Greek is when we use the word if and we actually mean sense. So your mom, you know, when you were a kid, says, bye, I'm going to the grocery store. And you go, hey, if you're going to the grocery store, could you get me a 12-pack of soda? Right? You know she's going to the grocery store. That's a first-class conditional. It's better translated sense. A fourth class is on the other end of the spectrum. And that verse... In Acts chapter 17 about the faithful Bereans is the only example in the entire New Testament of one. It means you're asking if doubting the possibility that it's true. The Bereans are not just faithful non-believers, they're faithful skeptics. And they're held up as an example. Why? Because they actually pursue the truth. And if God is true, and if God is light, then if you look, you will find In fact, just because I can't resist, the truth of this is deeper. God is not just waiting out there in the universe going, if anyone wants a relationship with me, it's easy enough to find me. He's seeking you. We're the lost one, not God. According to Jesus, we're the ones who God is after, not the other way around. And so, in a sense, your seeking for God is built on the foundation of the fact that he's already looking for you. And it's the same with truth. I know some of you are Christians and you've got places where you say, this, this right here hurts. This I don't understand. This I don't know how to reconcile. This I don't know where I'm at. That's a normal place to be as a Christian, but it's a terrible place to stay. If God is true, if the message is truth, if it from, comes from God, if it's rooted not just in the God who is light, but the God who is love, then we have to do our homework. Notice what he says in the second half of verse 2 here. He says, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And so he says here, we put it out there, we make it as clear as possible, and then we leave it in the lives, in the conscience of the listener. Okay? Notice that there's no arm twisting, there's no compulsion, there's no emotional manipulation. Just Clarity. That's the goal of a Christian, and then it's left up to the conscience. But it's worth mentioning that whenever Paul talks about commending ourselves to another's conscience, you can't get it just in verbal form. It also has to do with the way you live. Peter gives us what I think is the most interesting version of this. He says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Have you ever heard that before? That's what Peter tells us as Christians, that we should always be ready to give an answer, give a reason, give a a defense of the hope that lies within us. But have you ever read the context? The context is suffering. If you read it in 1 Peter, when should we be ready to give a hope? When people see us suffering and we suffer differently. As a people with hope. And they go, how in the world are you still standing? And you can say, frankly, I'm not. I'm on my knees constantly before God, but he is my strength. That's the idea here. Jesus says it's the same about the good works that we do. Let your light show so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay? The works of love in a Christian's life, the integrity of your character matters because it renders the gospel. It makes real and visible and validates the gospel. And so he commends himself to everyone's conscience, and he does care what people think of him. He's aware of the fact that he's on stage, if you will. He lives his life before an audience and is thoughtful about the decisions he makes and how they will impact the message he carries. But notice he adds here, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Okay? He can't stop there. It never stops with other people's opinions has to go all the way to before the face of God. It has to go there. We are designed in human beings as human beings in such a way that we need approval. It's written into Maslow's understanding of human needs. We need approval. Okay? The place where we get satisfying and complete approval is in God. When God speaks to Jesus from the clouds at his baptism and says, this is my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Because we are in Christ, we are in that place of approval, of being well pleasing to God. And if you don't have that taken care of, and you look for it elsewhere, it will inherently corrupt, corrupt the message. Because you'll modify and you'll make adjustments And you'll lose heart, as Paul mentions earlier, because of how people respond. And so it's not just commending to conscience, but his final vote is left to God. He continues on here in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. He's been using this metaphor of veiling. um, Last chapter, he used it as well. He's talking about the fact that um, he says, in fact, let's go ahead and read it. Uh, Verse 15, yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, sorry, this is in chapter 3, 315. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Okay, and so he says that as unbelievers hear the word proclaimed, as they read the scriptures, as they hear the gospel, it's as if there's a curtain that doesn't let the light in. He comes back to that metaphor here and he says, if our gospel is veiled, if there's a curtain, if it's hidden, if it's unseeable, it's only veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, what I said earlier about questions that should lead to pursuits, if you're not a Christian this morning, that applies to you as well. If you're in a place where you're not actively seeking then, then the truth, if you seek me with all your heart, the Lord says, you shall find me. That's true. That's there. But oftentimes our questions are excuses instead of pursuits. But beyond that, beyond that, Paul says that there is a spiritual reality involved in the darkness. He basically says here, part of the reason why not everybody responds to the truth, can't see the light of what God is saying, is because of blindness. Right? It doesn't matter how bright the sun shines. If you're blind, there's no sun. He says that's not just rooted in something wrong with us. It has a demonic component. He refers here to the devil as the god of this world, or more accurately, the god of this age. The Greek word here is aeon. And so don't think like earth is Satan's territory and heaven is God's. That's a misunderstander, misunderstanding. Paul's been talking about his whole ministry, this age and the age to come. That age and the age that has just dawned. If you've ever read c.s lewis's the lion the witch in the wardrobe narnia is trapped in a world that's always winter and never christmas but when aslan this lion who represents jesus comes back spring breaks and spring is this place where the snow is melting but summer is not yet here and that's the now but not yet that we all live in as christians and so when he talks about the god of this age he's talking about an overlapping realm But here's the point for us this morning. There is a spiritual blindness involved in what we're talking about. There's a demonic component. He says here, the God of this age. Now, why does he use the term God here? He's viewing Satan not as an equal power, as if there's really two gods, and they're dualistically dueling with one another, a yin and a yang, a lightness and a dark, and they're equal, and so neither will never win out. Now, the Bible is clear that Satan is a creation. The reason he calls him the God of this world is because he's basically the elected official of our times. Paul says in the book of Ephesians, um, in fact, I'll read it to you, talking about who we were before we were Christians. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins and which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And so here he calls him the prince of the power of the air. And so what he's recognizing here is that um, there's a spiritual component to our blindness. Here's what this means in the conveying of the message that we should do it prayerfully. Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And that's an important thing to remember. Okay. Sometimes conveyance of truth means argument, but it shouldn't mean argumentative. And it shouldn't mean enemies. In fact, Jesus says that we're to love our enemies and pray for those even who spitefully use us and deride us and hate us and prove it in their actions. Okay? But when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that doesn't mean there's no battle. He says, but again, instead we wrestle against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness. What this means is that we carry the message prayerfully, asking for divine help and illumination. Recognizing that there's a part of salvation that human beings can't do. That the truth can be right in front of us, but as it says in Romans chapter 1, our natural tendency is to suppress the truth. And so we should pray. But notice what it is. It's not, the problem here is not in the message itself. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, I wish we had time to unpack that last phrase, who is the image of God here. Because that goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, he created them male and female. In the image of God, he created them. Okay, This idea of the Imago Dei has to do with human destiny and personality and anthropology. What is the meaning of us as human beings? In Genesis, it's found in this concept of the image of God. We were created in his image and in his, and in his likeness. In other words, we were created to look like God and to represent him. But in the fall, all of that is tarnished. And so Jesus comes in the image of man and in the full image of God. And then as we saw last chapter, whether you noticed it or not, to restore us in the image. So Jesus is restored in the image of God. And then it says in chapter 318, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. One way to understand Christianity is the restoration of what was lost in the fall the restoration of the image of God, okay? And so he points here to Jesus being the full embodiment, the very image of God that radiates light. He continues here in verse five, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. Here's the message. What is the message? It's all about Jesus, Jesus and not ourselves, okay? but I want you to notice that doesn't deny us a role. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants. This is the only place in all of Paul's letters where he says, I am a slave. That's the word he uses here, doulos, to you, Corinthian church. Him calling himself a servant of the Lord is every other page in the New Testament. But here he says, no, I'm actually a slave of you. Do you see the contrast there? Instead of proclaiming himself, enthroning himself on his ministry and his message and making it all about him, he puts himself on the lowest level. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't carry or convey authority, but it definitely changes the way he wields it, does it not? He sees himself as their servant, as their slave uh, for Jesus' sake. Let's finish in verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When he uh, finishes up here in in verse 6, he quotes Genesis in chapter 1. He reminds us who the God is who's at the back of this light. What light it is we reflect as if we're the moon and God is the sun. He points back to the sun. In fact, as I told you, light has to do with this idea of message. What happened when God said, let light shine out of darkness? He spoke, and light was. Why do we carry a message? Why do we keep the message unadulterated? Why do we proclaim it boldly and without losing heart? Because this is the God who spoke, let there be light, and light was. And if he can do it in all of creation, he can do it in our hearts. In fact, listen to this verse again and think about, if you know the story, Paul's own conversion. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul knows this personally. When he was trying to put Christians to death as a new heretical sect of Judaism, as he was on the way to Damascus, a bright light shone and struck him blind. And in that light was the glory of Jesus Christ. And so he looks at this and he, he knows that at that moment, the light that was already, already there in the message actually broke through, penetrated to the heart, transformed Saul to Paul, if you will, and darkness to light. And so, yes, it's a spiritual battle. Yes, it's something that we have to merely commend to consciences and we don't try um, and um, compel. We don't try and manipulate. We don't twist people's arms. But it is something we can do with confidence because the message comes from God who speaks, and when he speaks, there is life. When he speaks, there is light. Notice how he puts together this complex phrase at the end. He says, "...has shown in our hearts..." To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a place where I would encourage you to meditate because there's so many layers there. But I want to just point out a couple of things before we close. First, we see here that the light gets all the way to the heart level. That takes us back to the new covenant. The new covenant is not truth out here, it's truth in here. The new covenant is not... Tablets of stone written with laws that explain who God is and what he expects of us. It's a a heart of flesh, a beating heart that's put inside of us. And here, the light bypasses the eyes, bypasses our understanding, bypasses our reason. Where we are blind, it takes the side door into our lives and becomes inside and not just outside. And so even if the curtains are drawn, we turn the switch, the light is on inside the house because of that, we go, oh, that's why it's dark in here. The curtains are drawn and we open the curtains and we see who God is. But notice also where this light is found. It says it shone shone in our heart to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, to know how glorious God is, to see the sun that makes the light in the face of Jesus Christ. Why do we proclaim Jesus and Jesus alone? Because it's in his face that we see who God is. What I'd like to do is just read through these first or last six verses again, and wherever it's anchored for you, wherever it's connected with you, I want you to make note of it as we read it. Before we worship, I want you to recognize that if you're a Christian this morning, this is your calling. This is your ministry. It's not going to look like the Apostle Paul's ministry, but as recipients of the gospel, we are also carriers of it. And so, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the faith of Jesus Christ let's pray